Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell joins me, and we'll talk about the Blackstone Launchpad Initiative. It's been around for about a decade, but now is expanding to Atlanta's HBCUs with a focus on entrepreneurship. Also, the culinary journey of certified master chef Daryl Schuler and why his Schuler Institute is the first black-owned culinary arts school in the U.S. located right over there in Tucker, Georgia. Those conversations in just a moment, but we'll begin with this. First Lady Jill Biden is expected to travel to Georgia this week. Now, the White House did not give many details about the First Lady's expected Thursday visit. Uh, the First Lady is also set to visit Florida. Now, she traveled to Maine and New Hampshire over the holiday weekend to mark the country's progress in getting more people vaccinated throughout the nation. In other news, Cobb County police continue to look for the individual who shot and killed three men last Saturday, including golf pro Gene Siller. On Saturday afternoon, officers found 41-year-old Siller unresponsive on the green with a gunshot wound to his head at the Pine Tree Country Club. He was also an employee of the club and was responding to an unauthorized pickup truck on the green. Authorities say that's when Siller was shot and later discovered two other men with gunshot wounds and the bed of the pickup truck. This story has made national headlines. Pine Tree Country Club is located near Kennesaw State University. And finally, the Atlanta Hawks have secured Nate McMillan as the team's head coach. McMillan had been interim head coach since March after the Hawks fired Lloyd Pierce. The Hawks became a different team, winning 27 of their next 38 games. And of course, their incredible playoff run, making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Congratulations, Coach McMillan. Glad to have you on permanently. Now, coming up next, Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell joins me. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. 
The philanthropic arm of the Blackstone investment firm is the Blackstone Charitable Foundation. And earlier this year, the foundation announced it was expanding its Blackstone Launchpad. It's a program to support what they say are underrepresented students and communities with a focus on colleges and universities with a majority diverse population or serving under-resourced communities. Well, now comes this initiative, developing and making entrepreneurial skills more accessible to students. And Blackstone Launchpad's expansion will include Spelman College, Morehouse College, and Clark Atlanta University. And joining me now is Spelman College President, Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell. Thank you for taking time. Glad to have you back. Good to be back, Rose. Thank you for inviting me. Speaking of good to be back, let's catch up a bit because our last couple of conversations centered around the pandemic. I think we're all sad and decisions about opening the campus back up seems like a long time ago. Wow. Uh, What do you make of all this where you all are now? Rose, our students have been absolutely heroic. And I say that because this year for them has really been a, a, a voyage over troubled waters. They, they have really had one barrier after another. First, they, they had to leave. They had to leave campus. And, you know, campus is home. Mm-hmm. That's their second home for them. So that was a disruption to begin with. And then, of course, the pandemic itself has threatened our community more than any other community in this country. Mm -hmm. So you hear, you know, week after week, the losses, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, loved ones. Um, We here on campus have had that same experience among our colleagues. So this has been difficult from, as a public health crisis, it has hit us harder than most. And it's been an economic crisis. Mm -hmm. Our students lost jobs, their families, members of their families lost jobs. So as I was thinking about this as a storm, this is a terrible storm. Spellman had to become their arc. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had to be that place where we, we could gather, they could gather around. And even if they couldn't be here in person, we could extend a helping hand. So we thought very, very carefully about how we were going to extend that hand. And, you know, we were one of the few colleges that deeply discounted tuition mm-hmm. and fees, 14%. We, took, we were very lucky to get some phila- uh, philanthropic funds. We gave out financial aid. We gave out emergency funds from the federal stimulus. Uh, we instituted pass-fail to, so that our students could get some academic help. We had uh, summer school was online so they could, you know, take summer classes at a discounted rate. So we tried to think about every step of the way. What can we do Mm -hmm. to extend that helping hand? So now we're back at the point where we're going to repopulate the campus. Mm. We're going to get to that in a moment because, you know, Madam President, I think often when we think about wraparound services for students, we think of K through 12 and our public uh, schools here in the United States. And what I learned, too, also in, in having all these conversations or how important wraparound services were for college students. I I know of a student at a, at a nearby college, university who was trying to do papers on their phone because they didn't have access to the computer lab. And, and, and fortunately, the village came together and got that student a laptop. Uh, when you think about that, and folks may not understand that for so many students, the university is just more than just that, that academic place. It is their home for so many of them. 
I'm just imagine you all knew of so many students that needed more than just the access of, of, of taking classes online. They needed more. You are absolutely right. We had we had students who had only had cell phones, didn't have laptops or tablets, didn't have hotspots, didn't have access to 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 the internet. Um, we had students who were suffering from food insecurity, having lost their jobs. They couldn't buy the groceries they needed to sustain themselves. We had mm-hmm. students who were uh, had housing insecurity. So, in fact, they were on the verge of homelessness or were experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. So. These were very real assaults on our students' well-being, their health and well-being that went over, over and beyond COVID. And so these wraparound services are like an arm that we, we put around our students and embrace. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we hold them so that they can make it across that, you know, that bridge. They can make it inside of our arc. You as the president of an institution, especially one like Spelman College, what was your takeaway from experiencing all of that? My takeaway is that we are an extraordinarily generous people. When we made a call out to our alumni, they responded immediately and overwhelmingly. Uh, We had gifts from people we had never met before Mm. who, you know, the kindness of strangers. Uh, my takeaway was resilience on our part and inventiveness. Our students, our students began to invent ways for them to congregate in their own cities. They would, you know, put the call out and they'd have little groups in parks, you know, of Spelman and Morehouse students. And they would uh, begin projects, uh, study groups virtually online to help give each other, you know, support and sustenance. Uh, they would have, we had some upper class students who were helping out uh, first year students virtually. Mm-hmm. They'd have salon night and they do, <laughs> and they have their nails or they'd have cinema night. But they invented these ways of recreating community for themselves that were just so wonderful and joyful. By the way, I have to say this I just got a text from a friend who says, Mary's the truth. I love her. Look at you getting love over here. <laughs> That's a fellow educator who was sour name uh, to keep that anonymous. So let's briefly go over plans for the fall. As of right now, is it back to normal, so to speak? What will it look like? So it is a new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, we're bringing students back, but we're bringing them back very attentive to these medical protocols. We're requiring, as, as, as are every uh, campus in the AUC, we're requiring a vaccine. Mm-hmm. for our students, our faculty, and our staff. Uh, we know that we still are going to have to have testing regimens. Uh, when we had students back then, about 230 students in the spring, mm-hmm. and they were tw- tested twice a week, it won't be that frequent, but we will do periodic testing. We still have to set aside spaces for those students who might test positive mm-hmm. or who might need to be quarantined. And for a while, at least, we're still going to require masks, at least in the first month. So we're still having to abide, but it won't be the kind of complete freedom that we've enjoyed in the past, Mm -hmm. but it will be an opportunity to bring ourselves back together as a community. Will students be allowed to opt for online only if it's for a medical reason or they don't want to be vaccinated? Have you all worked that out? So we have extended to our students and to our faculty exceptions Mm -hmm. to coming back in person. And among those exceptions are medical reasons. And we have a whole list of exceptions. 
And right now, <clears throat> we've just issued the forms. You can apply for an exception. We have a review board that's looking at them on a case-by-case -case basis. And there will be some staff, some students and faculty who'll be allowed to. Madam, Madam President, let's talk about this because often between Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta University, the students can take classes at their neighboring you know, institutions. So you're all working in tandem to have the same type of requirements? Or how's that, how are you all working through that? Because that way, if a student who may not, is not vaccinated, can they go to any class? And maybe they'll go to class at Clark, but maybe not at Spelman. Or how are you all working through all of that? Oh, Rose, it, you know, working with our, my colleagues at Clark, Morehouse, Morehouse School of Medicine has been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And we made a decision very early on that we were all going to be lockstep in terms of how we approached the pandemic. So we have, we have each of the campuses has the same protocols mm -hmm. because one of the attractions of coming here is that you can take courses, you know, you can cross campus and take a course at Clark Atlanta or Morehouse if you're a Spelman student and vice versa for them. And uh, we've gone to great lengths to really strengthen our curriculum based on the fact that we can complement each other's strengths mm -hmm. and, and make it very attractive to be here. As we shift and talk about some other good news, so how many incoming first-year students are you all expecting in the fall? <laughs> well, more than we expected. You know, we had a record number of applications this year. Eleven. Did y'all get my application? Oh, I didn't see that. Because I haven't gotten a response yet. I don't know if I've been accepted. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> And, you know, we accepted our, you know, a percentage that was very close to what we've done in years past. And almost twice the number of students responded to us. Mm. So um, that number is much larger than we thought. And I don't think it'll be, I, I think when all is said and done, it'll be somewhere between 700 probably and 800 first year students. What is it about that? that move-in day for you that you, you didn't get last year, obviously, but um, what is move-in day like for you as a president on that campus? Oh my gosh, I love move-in day. I put on my Spelman swag, <laughs> I go stand out, and with, with my whole senior leadership team, I stand outside the gates and we usually have our pals, that's our student group, waving their balloons, and I wait for that first car to pull up. And we're just, yay, and they're all, you know, sleepy. They've been, they've been driving for hours and hours. And here we're, yay, welcome to Spelman. But I love it. And, you know, we get a picture with the first student who comes with her parents. And it's just so exciting because there's so much hope and expectation and just wonder. And I, I just love that feeling. You I love to, welcoming them. You'll get to experience that uh, this fall then. Again, yeah. Let's shift and talk about, you know, let me be fair, too, because in a jokingly manner, but y'all been getting a lot of money uh, during, <laughs> during this pandemic. <laughs> Every time I get a press release, Clark Atlanta and Spelman and Morehouse getting some money from Mackenzie Scott, no relation, and this person. So, But that's a good thing for all the, all the institutions that were able to Thank receive you. some money through philanthropy. That What does it say to you about people still... Not still, but, you know, I remember one time someone said to me, what's the purpose of HBCUs? And I said, you know what, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. But also <laughs> to understanding the, the purpose and the need and to, and to continue to, to fund the great initiatives at HBCUs. 
You know, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is coming out with a, you know, he has his podcast, mm-hmm. Revisionist History, and he's taken as a topic HBCUs. And he's taken, and, and one of the things, one of the points that he makes is that HBCUs are doing everything that colleges everywhere should be doing. We are already doing them and we're doing it well. And that is take that is focusing on high performing students who are also high need. Mm-hmm and achieving educational outcomes that nobody else in the country is achieving. With this Blackstone Launchpad from the Blackstone Charitable Foundation, and then, and again, that uh, Blackstone Launchpad has been around for a while, but with this initiative, we, first of all, let's get this out of the way. Will you all receive a financial gift? We do. Uh, we each have received $500,000, and that's going to be spread out over five years. Mm-hmm. We each will have a physical location on our campus. And what makes this gift so fantastic is that it comes at a time when Spelman and Morehouse are establishing a center for black entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. That's what the ACE and, and the other, maybe I don't want to say the wrong banking institution, but I think there's a banking institution involved. And then with ACE. Bank of America. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I'm glad you got, cause I was going to say a different <laughs> bank. <laughs> bank of America. And then I would have got an email. <laughs> so how did all this come about? So this this was this was one you know the universe coming together in exactly the the, the right way. Um, for Spelman, you know, for the past five years, we've had something called an innovation lab, mm-hmm. and it's where our students can come and they can try out anything. They can we have all this technology, we have different uh, software platforms, and they can just try out their ideas. Mm-hmm. And what do you know when you get a group of black women together and they start you know tinkering and toying with things? All of a sudden, they come up with a product here and an idea here and a service there. And pretty soon we had a blossoming entrepreneurship of literally over 150 students. And just at that time, Morehouse has been doing this for a lot longer than us, I would Mm -hmm. say 15 years. Somebody from something called the Black Economic Alliance Mm -hmm. came to us and said, do you think Morehouse and Spellman would like to set up a center for Black entrepreneurship? And we said, you showed up right (laughs) just in time. And together, we went to a lot of major financial institutions, Bank of America being the pioneer, being the first one of them, and found an incredible openness Mm -hmm. to our ideas. Um, And so they made the initial grant. Blackstone has come in. We've gotten support from the Ford Foundation. We have a a number of other grants that are pending that we're, we're pretty certain are going to be successful. And I will say, Rose, in the space of a year, we will have a flourishing, thriving Center for Black Entrepreneurship that's going to serve not only Atlanta and our students, but also uh, we feel nationally. And when you think about going back to the pandemic for a moment, because we heard, well, so many small businesses, particularly businesses operated by people of color, really suffered and also not being, especially with that first stimulus package, not being able to to get in and receive some of that funding. And you think about the importance just in general of how many small businesses may never come back online now due to the pandemic. That's right. That's right. No, access to capital has been probably one of the, the most acute, the largest barriers to success for all black businesses mm-hmm. and all black people. But, but we also know that it's, it's important to establish a very firm foundation in you know, the business of entrepreneurship, 
how you finance a business, how you market your product, how you determine uh, the demand for it, how you manufacture or distribute it over time. All of these are absolute as, as critical as developing this access to capital. And with this initiative with uh, Blackstone Launchpad, will you all have a physical entrepreneurial lab? Will you be able to hire folks to come in for, for instructors? And, and that, all of that will take care of that. We will. We'll have, we'll have, first of all, we'll be part of a network. Uh, launch pads are all over the country and colleges, large and small, all over the country. So we're part of that network. Um, and that's, that's really important that you're not isolated, but that you have access to information and knowledge and opportunities through that network. We'll be able to have technology resources that can come in. We can have speakers who will come in. We'll have access to pitch competition so our students can sharpen you know, their skills. Um, and our folks are so excited about the arrival of Blackstone Launchpad, so we can't wait. Now I got to ask you because you are you have this incredible art background as well. Um, I imagine if there was if you had an opportunity to do something because you love being Spelman College president, but if you had something <laughs> that you could get some funding in in terms of entrepreneur and arts, what would that look like for you? Because I know you are not only a historian but you are a curator and an ambassador of the arts. So, so, you know, Rose, the first job I had when I was in New York City was an entrepreneurial job. It was at the Studio Museum in Harlem. It was a loft over a liquor store and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you needed some inspiration, you had you had it you all and we had And we had to build that into a business, the mm -hmm. business of running a museum. We built that into a museum. Now, the place I moved into is being torn down and they're building a, a beautiful museum mm. uh, on that. So the part where we're going to locate our center for um, black entrepreneurship inside our arts building. Oh. We're about to build a new facility over here at the corner of Lee and Westview. And we're putting the entrepreneurship program in the middle of the arts building because we look at it as a creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. We look at it as at, at introducing our students and cultivating in our students an entrepreneurial mindset mm -hmm. of, I've got an idea, I can make this work. You mentioned being part of a network, but as you know also, the HBCUs are part of the community network on that side of town. And also going back to the plight of small businesses, when you think about the importance of what this will mean to the community, as well for oh, those yes. who may not be students and being able to maybe open businesses or services that serve a particular community, the community from once they, from where they are from. You, 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 you have, you know, put your finger on something that is critically important to us. And we are, as, as we speak, developing an online component to the curriculum so that whether you go to Spelman or Morehouse or not, you would have access through our online programs for adult learners to get a certificate in entrepreneurship. As well, we have a relationship with the Russell Center, which is a phenomenal incubator for people who already have businesses or business ideas. You may not you know, be in, in college or beyond college age. Mm -hmm. So these get absolutely important that we seed efforts here in our community and we'd be able to reach out to black communities across the country and i just got an email from a listener who wants to know when will all this be available <laughs> let, let them get it up and running y'all <laughs> so we're going to start offering courses here on campus in the fall 
Uh, we are hoping to have our online component available in the next six months. And then we'll have a, a, a formal launch with, you know, our director and, and our minor set up by fall of 2022. And as we wrap up, uh, I got to ask about you. I, I remember, I believe your first interview as president was right yeah. here in the studio. I think I'm sitting That's in your right. chair right now. Um, yeah. How long you want to, how long you want me to keep referring to you as Madam President at Spelman College? <laughs> <laughs> I know you didn't know this was coming, but I'm sorry, you know. I, I, you know, I love this job. I love Spelman and I love being here. And, and even with all the, you know, the challenges that we face this year, um, it's something that I, I, I really am committed to. But, um, you know, one has to think of when it's time to take a bow and, and exit. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the first to know. You sure about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Dr. Mary Schmidt-Camel, Madam President of Spelman College, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on the, the Blackstone Launchpad expansion with your fellow Morehouse College and Clark University. Some amazing folks have amazing ideas, so I can't wait to see what comes out of that entrepreneurial lab that you all have over there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. This is wonderful. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In the culinary world, the letters CMC mean a lot. Certified Master Chef. And it's the highest level of certification a chef can achieve. And I want you to hold on that for a moment. Overall, within the culinary world, however, there are many opportunities. Still, there's a growing need for more, you guessed it, diversity throughout all the jobs and especially among chefs. Well, my next guest has a vision and a mission for the future in the culinary arts, making a way for the next generation of chefs by not by teaching not only his passion and love, but his journey is also an inspiration. Master Chef Daryl Schuler holds so many distinctions, I need a whole nother hour to tell y'all about it. It won't have that much time. But he also has something else. He's the founder of the Schuler Hospitality Group and the founder of the Schuler Institute, the first black-owned culinary arts school in the U.S., located in the neighboring city of Tucker. And, of course, you know what that means. It means Master Chef Schuler. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with this. And I know it's a backstory. I imagine there's a moment of discovery, is what we call it, that sparked your interest in all of this. What was that moment? You know, that's a great question. What sparked my interest into this culinary world was when I was a kid, just watching my mother cook, you know, that inspiration of seeing her get in the kitchen and do her thing. You know, we grew up in Central Florida. We didn't have much, but she made the most out of what she was able to have. And so just watching her cook and the hospitality that she demonstrated, sharing food with all of our neighbors, just making sure everyone had some love is what inspired me today to do the same thing, but in my own way. You know, as a certified master chef, I have the ability to really touch a lot of lives. And so I kind of want to follow her footsteps to being able to help the next generation, to help those who really want to take their career to the next level and just do as much as I can, as much as she did. What was that? That was there a signature dish of mom that you loved and it took you some time to try to get the recipe right? <laughs> yes, she had the best oxtails in the world and it's crazy because my brother and I would just 
whenever she'll make a pot of oxtail, she'll put them on super early in the morning. And me and my brother would just go and lift up the lid, and first we just started to smell the aroma. Then we started to pull out little small tails and mm. eat it, and before <laughs> you know it, we ate up pretty much the whole pot. So I never was able to, to mimic what she was able to do, even now. But, but those are the things that I remember is, you know, whenever you cook with the heart and you cook with a lot of passion and, 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 and thinking about the people that you're cooking for, those memories translate over to memories that they carry on for, you know, for generation to generation. So it's that one dish, the oxtail, that I just can't put my finger on. But I'm getting close, though. I think I'm getting there. And your mom's oxtails would go perfectly with my father's, and I've said this before, hot skillet uh, cornbread, yeah. um, which I have not been able to total, totally duplicate, but I'm getting there. Now, uh, Chef, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm going to play a clip from about four years ago on this very program, a Closer Look profile, three black women and their journey in the culinary world. And our conversation would begin with each answering this question. My name is Chef Deborah Vantrese, and food to me is family. My name is Chef Jennifer Hill Booker, and food to me is the great equalizer. My name is Tiffany Berrier, and food to me is love. Chef, were you able to hear all of that? Yes, I did. I'm going to ask you that same question to finish that. Food to you is? Food to me is life because it kind of just wakes you up. It just takes you from your current situation to a place that you wasn't even thinking about. You know, just with our conversation here, you took me back to my mother. You took me back to when I was 10 years old. (laughs) So food, especially when it's done right, Rose, you know, people just do food this day and age to where it just is all for the glam, it's all for the Instagram. But when you truly cook food from the heart and you connect with people from an emotional standpoint, you can take people from a very terrible situation and you can give them life and take them into a whole new world of memories or inspiration or just changing their day. Mm-hmm. But for me, food is life. Uh-huh. And that's what it's all about for me. So family, great equalizer, love and life. I love it. Now I can add that to the clip. I want to talk about your culinary journey because I'm curious along the way. And I think I know the answer is, did you see many people of color? Beautiful question. No, you did see people of color when you began on the ground level, mm-hmm. on the line, cooking, in the dish pit, um, you know, running food to the table. But as you became, as I became and, and got higher and higher in my career and I began to grow, the color diversity became very minimal. Uh, I didn't see a whole lot of shelves um, that was of color executive shelves of large properties. I didn't see a whole lot of, you know, minorities being on the U.S. Culinary Olympic team. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't see a whole lot of minorities um, becoming master chefs, even though there were several that pursued that goal. Um, but that's the way of the world. Someone has to lead the way. You need pioneers. You need people that's going to go through certain situations and, and be willing to go through possible failure. You know, because everything I've done in my career had a high level of failure. And that's where you end up breaking ground. You end up being a trailblazer. You got to do the things that, you know, people will call, you know, you're crazy of doing. Um, but for me, throughout my career, I've always been the only minority, only African-American, um, you know, that was doing things. But, you know, we're changing that landscape now with mm-hmm. the Shooter Institute. We're changing that, that whole outlook as far as what you can do with the art of food and hospitality. 
it is a long road, but it, it's a road that can benefit everyone, especially people of color. You can be a global citizen in this industry. You can go and make a life for yourself that you never thought that you can make in this industry. So I hope that other people see what I've done, see what other chefs have done, and say, hey, I can do that as well. That's what I was going to ask you, because, and, and again, and I wasn't joking when I said if I had to sit here and list all of your achievements, do you think folks understand just what can be achieved in the culinary world, and especially as a chef? Listen, you have received over 12 gold medals and eight best in shows. You've been a part of the American Culinary Federation. You've been on the ACF United States Culinary Olympic team. Let's be really clear. I did not even know that such thing existed. So just even in researching you. So just do folks, do you think folks really understand just what an amazing career path you can achieve in this world? I think back in the day when I was coming up, I, I think, you know, chefs knew that they can do great things in this industry. They probably just didn't think that they had the resources or the support to, to achieve those things. And for my career, I had to do a lot of this on my own. I didn't have a whole lot of mentors standing next to me holding a knife. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of people I can call in the middle of the night and just ask for advice. You know, there was a few that really came to my help whenever I needed them. But it's a lonely road. So I think in our hearts, a lot of African-Americans, minorities think that they can do great things, Mm -hmm. but they just have that doubt, you know, and that's the biggest thing that you have to overcome is, you know, do you have the courage to go through, you know, late nights and early mornings and sacrifices away from your family, doing those things that's going to make you a champion in your own right? So all those accolades that you saw, it came with a healthy price, Rose. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to think about the time when I was on the Olympic team. I had a 50-hour-a-week job, and then I had to go and travel every other weekend to a city out in California and train with the Olympic players. You know, and, and, and that's the thing that, you know, if you're not willing to go through that sacrifice, if you think going through that sacrifice is not going to pay off, then you're never going to get there. So you need courage, you need support, you need guidance, but you need to know that you have a system there that can help you. The voice you hear is certified Master Chef Daryl Schuler. He's my guest today, and we're just about to talk about the Schuler Institute's the first black-owned culinary arts school in the U.S., right over here in the city of Tucker. You have been adamant, Chef, and you believe, and I'm quoting you here, quoting you here, you say, culinary education needs a new approach. So take that further for our listeners and why the Schuler Institute is going to be different in that approach. You know, culinary education, and, and I was part of the culinary education world back when I first started out in my career. I was an instructor at one of the local culinary schools. And I was one of the top instructors there for about 12 years. And then uh, I was director of education for another large culinary program, Le Cordon Bleu, mm-hmm. for about five years. And so I kind of saw the, the great divide is what I call it. You know, back when I went to culinary school in the early 90s, it was, it, was, it was a perfect alignment. Most chefs wanted to go to culinary schools, get the technical training, and go out into the industry. But this new day and age, they don't want just the technical development. They want to learn the business part of it. They want to learn the why, the science part of it. And that's why I created the Shuler Institute, because it gives students what they need for today and beyond. We're not training people to go out and just be a line cook, mm-hmm. but we're training them to be a line cook and then a sous chef, a executive chef, and then a business owner, really truly breaking down generational curses and giving them the tools that they need that's going to last them a lifetime. And I said to myself, if I ever became a certified master chef, I'm going to create the blueprint for the next future master chef. So what, what would I need if I had to go back over and do culinary arts all over again? This is what Schuler Institute is all about, a real-world environment that allows students to come in, cook, 
be face forward in front of the guests and really truly be global citizens. So when they are hired, they day one ready. What is what are those common questions or concerns you get from from students or from those who who are already saying, "Hey, I want to sign up. I want to be. I want to be a part of the Schuler Institute, but I have this concern. What is that?" Some of the concerns that I hear from you know future you know potential students is you know do I have what it takes to make it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what is the debt that I'm going to incur going to your program? Um, and we've answered all those questions. One, you know, it's a hands-on environment, but we treat you as if. You're not just a student, but you're part of the team. Mm-hmm. And we go with that team mentality because it is like a sport. You need a coach that are really working with you to make you successful, to help you go through those trials and tribulations. And then once you go through our program, you have that high-level education, you have that exposure to the, to the industry globally, and then you graduate, you don't have all that debt because we have a program that is built to, to help students offset their tuition and graduate almost borderline tuitionless. And mm-hmm. so what better way of playing, balancing out the playing field is allow students to go out into the industry with limited to no debt, but also have the mental tools to go out there and be, you know, self-starters, create that, that next product, create that next great food truck operation, but allow them to fulfill their dreams <laughs> without having to worry about fulfilling a debt. You know, it's so funny, Chef, because I just like the last segment, I already got an email, actually a text, someone saying, okay, is it open and how do I get my son <laughs> to enroll? <laughs> he loves to cook. This would be perfect for it. him. So tell us more about that. Is the Schuler Institute, is it finally open? What's the process for folks to find out more? So we're going through the final regulation process with the state. And once we got that taken care of, we'll start bringing in students towards this fall. Last year kind of put a little stall with our operation launch because mm-hmm. of COVID, of course, sure. and not being able to congregate. But now since things are relaxed and we're able to bring in cohorts of students, you'll be able to find more information about the program at SchulerInstitute.com. It'll give you a high-level overview of what our program is about, some of the courses that the students would take. And you also can see the tuition rate in there as well. When you see the tuition rate compared to the level of education that they'll get, you cannot find anything better anywhere in the country. We really want to produce the next generation of Navy SEALs of the culinary hospitality world and allow these students to go out there and be impact players and leaders Mm -hmm. in their own right. So we're super thrilled about what we have. We're super thrilled about the group of students that's going to come in. And, you know, it's going to be trend-setting. It's going to be um, the new wave of culinary and hospitality education in America. And, Chef, let's switch and talk about something that you and I both know is so important. Let's talk about career placement or or folks being able to utilize Institute after they've received their their certifications, what have you. Will you all be able to at least help them on the way in terms of of career or, or, or finding a job? Oh, absolutely. And that's the magical part about what we created. I created something to where we have integrated corporations in our curriculum development. The support of our program is based upon our ability to to speak with great corporations to allow these students to have jobs while they're in school, to allow these students to already have their foot in the door, knowing that this is the pathway I'm going to take that's going to lead me for the next 10 years of my, my hospitality career. So we've already answered those questions. Our students will be chosen. Our students will be recruited like NBA players or AAU players. They want the best of the best, and I think corporations are going to come and just hand-select certain individuals to go and be a part of their program. And what better way to say, wow, I'm entering into my field with a corporation that's going to continue my growth, continue to support that development and learning, 
Um, and then also I know what the end goal would be, and that's eventually having my own operation. Because I was a student of that. I worked with great corporations. Mm-hmm. Those corporations have great training programs within their operations that you can continue to learn and grow. You never stop learning. You're going to be a student for life, and you want to partner up with companies that's going to support that growth and your development. You know, a moment ago you talked about experiencing what you called many high levels of failures. What was your a lesson for you in, in one of those failures that you say? And how is that helping you in, in terms of also creating and making it possible for the next, the future generation of folks in the culinary world? Do you, you Are you comfortable with talking about one of those failures? Oh, absolutely, Rose. That's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking. Um, back in 2008, <clears throat> excuse me, after I had made the U.S. Olympic team, we went to Germany and we got gold medals and we was on the podium and the American flag and, and anthem was being played. And we came back to America with these Olympic gold medals and we represented our country. I, I tried out for the team in 2012 and I didn't make it. Hmm. And the reason why was some people taste success and they give up the fight and they give up the ability to push and to work hard. And that sense of entitlement hurts your career and it hurts your ability to grow. So I use that as a story all the time. Just because you achieve one thing doesn't mean the journey is over with. You thought you would automatically be on that team in 2020. That's right. That's right. I thought that I had that gold medal and I was just going to walk on that team. And I did not think about the young man who did not have that gold medal, who wanted to be a Daryl Schuler, came in, was hungry, was aggressive, had everything that they needed, and they outplayed me. And I hurt it my own self with entitlement. But I was able to redeem myself and get my career back on track. But that's a true failure there. And that's a lesson that you that I've learned that made a huge impact in where I am today. I don't take anything for granted. And just because I achieve one thing does not mean that I don't remember those hunger pains. And I get back at there and I continue to battle and achieve the next thing. I'm curious, how long does it take to become a certified master chef? It sounds very grueling. <laughs> Well, the Certified Master Chef exam is considered one of the top 10 most rigorous exams in the world. Um, so it's a test, what they call a test of a lifetime. It's, it's nothing that you can say, uh, I, I want to do this in five years. It's not going to happen. It's something that you say from a young man early on in your career, this is what I want to do. I want to be a Certified Master Chef. And everything that you do should lead towards that goal. I made the decision to be a Master Chef when I was 19 years old which led me through being a, a member of the U.S. Culinary Olympic team and then, of course, passing the exam in 2014. So it was a 20-year journey for me from the time I became a culinarian to, time, to the time I became a master. Um, it, it, it's an eight-day test. It's 130 hours. The success rate is less than 10%, 20%. So you got to understand it's a serious test. It's something that is not taken lightly. And it's something that, you know, you have to be committed to. And not only you committed, but your family and friends have to be committed to it as well. Speaking of commitment, the Schuler Institute, I imagine you will have to commit a lot of time to this. But you also still, you still have to be, you know, certified master chef, Daryl Schuler. How are you going to mm-hmm. balance all of this? You know, I've been balancing this type of load all my career. Um, like what I mentioned earlier, you know, having a full-time job with tremendous amount of responsibilities and on top of that, being a member of a five-man team representing your country, there's a lot more uh, responsibilities there. So the load that I have on my shoulders now is what I've been accustomed to. 
you know, I just want to show the blueprint on how others can do the same thing as well. And finally, as we wrap up, what is your vision for the Shuler Institute to become? The vision for the Shuler Institute has become the new Harvard of culinary hospitality and education. I want it to be something that is so globally recognized. I want us to be recognized for the amount of students that don't get in our program than the ones who do get in our program, because our students deserve to have that high-level education and to be able to say that, hey, I'm taking one step forward to become a master of my own craft. Maybe you'll need several Schuler Institutes. We already have them. It's working. <laughs> when you think back to that 10-year-old watching Mama cook the oxtails, now you got me hungry, Chef. Uh, <laughs> when you think back to that 10-year-old watching Mama make those oxtails in the kitchen, and if someone could have laid all this out to you, um, could you would you have believed it? No, I would not have believed it. But... And my mom, this one thing my mom would always tell, and rest her soul, she would always tell me before I was born, God showed her a vision of me, and I was supposed to be a great man. Mm-hmm. Now, I could easily have said mom was just a, a crazy Christian for Christ, but I believed in what she said. And everything I did, I believed that that dream that God gave her was meant for me, and here I am living out that destiny. What's your, what was your mom's name? Nevada Robinson. All right. Let me ask you this, because you are a certified master chef. When you going to get the oxtails recipe together, chef? Now, you, what you missing? You know, I, I know it's a lot of seasonings in there, and it's right. slow, slow cooked. What, what you missing? What you not getting? I don't think I'm missing much now. I can give Mama uh, oxtails around for her money. I just, I just because she's Mama, I got to give her one up on me. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Uh, would you mind sharing that recipe with me offline? Absolutely. I would love to. <laughs> I love it. Daryl Shula, the founder of Shula Hospitality Group and the founder of the Tucker-based Shula Institute, the first black-owned culinary arts school in the U.S. We'll have a link to the website. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and your those those first wave of students that come in there. We have to come over there. If you need someone to sample, you know, I, I'm your woman. <laughs> Rose, you're on the list. Thank you so much. And it was an honor. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Chef. Bye-bye. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can always let me know what you think about the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now I think I want some oxtail recipes. Send me your oxtails recipe or if there's a kevin vegan version of that stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta's choice for npr i'm rose scott hi it's terry gross the host of fresh air we bring you in-depth long-form interviews with actors directors musicians authors journalists and more listen to our peabody award-winning fresh air podcast from whyy and npr Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.